Would you join me in prayer again as we look at the word together this morning? I want to pray that God will bless our study and pray again for this families. Lord, thank you for this day uh, that we get to celebrate <clears throat> new life and expanding families in our church family here. We thank you for the, the awesome task of being a parent. Thank you for those in this room right now who are seeing the fruit of their own prayers and their own labors as parents as they see their kids raising now their grandkids in the faith. And pray for those that are on the front end of that journey, that you would help us to be faithful in the days ahead. And pray that even as we open the word together this morning, that you would unite our hearts, as the psalmist said, you would unite our hearts to focus on the things you might teach us today. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, well, in, in addition to the uh, dedication of our children this morning, uh, we're also celebrating a special day today. Today is Reformation Sunday, uh, which comes about every year in the church calendar. And uh, it is especially significant this year because this is the 500-year anniversary of the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. And so uh, we're going to kind of commemorate this season in church history a bit today in the context even of our teaching time. And it, it may seem a bit odd to have a history lesson on a Sunday morning. Uh, depending on the church tradition you've come up in, uh, you may or may not be real familiar with a whole lot of church history. Uh, I, I grew up uh, in a Baptist church, and we didn't talk about the history of the church a whole lot. I can resonate with uh, one of my seminary professors who used to begin his church history class by saying, my goal in this class is to convince you that there have been Christians between the Apostle Paul and your grandmother. And there's a whole history uh, that you may or may not have been told about, and we're going to study it in this class. And we're not going to go through the whole history of the church this morning. We're, we're barely even going to touch on the Reformation. Uh, but we do want to acknowledge the significance of this day. I think it's helpful to note uh, how God's people have been faithful in different generations and, and what God has done through them, and especially to see how God has been faithful to his people every era, uh, through every challenge, whatever they faced. And so the Reformation, like so many other times in history, is really a study, uh, a story about God using particular individuals to accomplish his plan. It, it reminds me of uh, what's said about David in Acts 13, where it says, David served the purpose of God in his generation. That's really the story of church history. It's a story of different people serving the purposes of God in their unique generation. And so, as we're coming into Reformation Day, I think it's actually really helpful that we're in Luke 23 today, the end of Luke 23. I originally considered doing a different passage today and getting outside of our study of Luke that we've been doing throughout the year this year. But I felt like Luke 23 was actually a pretty good place to be because it reminds us that how God can use someone who's willing to stand for truth in their own generation. And so we're going to look at just a few verses in Luke 23, verse 50 through 56, and two basic goals. Uh, I want to tell you a little bit about Joseph of Arimathea, uh, whom we meet in Luke 23, how God used him in his day. And then we're going to use him as a bit of a lens to help us better understand a guy named Martin Luther, uh, who was involved in and in many ways launched the Protestant Reformation, and see a little bit about how God used him in his day. And so we're going to look at those two figures in the sermon today. 
And as a PSA before we get started, I just want to acknowledge each of you. I realize we have a lot of young kids in the room today. That's a little different than even how we normally would be here at Midlands. Uh, so I've, I've tried to accommodate and I've shortened my sermon down to about an hour and 10 minutes this morning. <laughs> so if you just sit tight, everything will be just fine. Uh, we're an hour and eight minutes to go. So everything should be fine. I'm obviously kidding. I too have a three-year-old in the room, and I have a wife to whom I must answer to later. And so I promise you this won't be uh, as long as a normal sermon. Uh, and we even have a video for the kids in the middle of this. So kiddos, uh, uh, try to pay close attention so the video will make more sense to you. We'll get to that in a few minutes and hopefully help you understand a little bit about Martin Luther uh, as we're learning about the Reformation this morning. But let's start in Luke 23, and let's look at Joseph of Arimathea. I'm going to just kind of read the text as we're going make a few comments, uh, and then we'll see how he can help us understand Luther. So Luke 23, I'm going to read verse 50 and 51 first, and this will be on the screen behind me if you want to follow along. This is, of course, right after the death of Jesus, a little kind of forgotten story in the Gospels often. So Luke 23, verse 50. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking... For the kingdom of God. Okay, so what do we learn about Joseph in that short little passage there? Well, we learn he's from a little town outside of Bethlehem, Arimathea, and he's a member of the council. This would have been the Jewish Sanhedrin. This would have been the group of people that helped uh, plot with Judas to get Jesus arrested. This would have been the group of people before whom Jesus appeared, who eventually sent Jesus to Pilate, who eventually sent him to the cross. And what we learn about Joseph is not only is he a part of this important and influential group of people in the first century, uh, in first century Jerusalem, he actually didn't agree with their plan. We learn here that not all of the leaders were on board with the plan to reject Jesus and hand him over to the Romans. Uh, John tells us that uh, Joseph here was one of the secret disciples, along with at least Nicodemus, maybe some others, who were looking for the kingdom of God. They, as, as Jewish men and women, they were anticipating that God would send his Messiah and that when that Messiah came, that he would transform the world. And so in the midst of a religious culture that had gone astray, here we have Joseph seeking the truth. He's looking for the kingdom of God. He's willing to step outside of what the, the people around him are doing and the way the people around him are thinking. And he's willing to go his own way. So what does he do? Well, we read verse 52. This man, Joseph, went to Pilate and he asked for the body of Jesus. And he took it down and he wrapped it in a linen shroud and he laid it in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. All right, so what, what does Joseph do there and why is it important? Well, he approaches Pilate to request the body of Jesus. Really what Joseph does is he uses his position and his influence to his advantage. So he's a member of the council. So he's able to go to Pilate, Pilate and somehow in some way trust him in a way that maybe you wouldn't trust a guy like Peter or someone else. And he, he goes and he asks him for the body of Jesus. And then he basically gives Jesus a proper burial. He, he wraps him in a linen shroud. Luke, Luke doesn't include this detail, but... John tells us that uh, Nicodemus and Joseph anointed the body of Jesus, and they anointed him lavishly, like a king, in fact. The amount of spices and ointments they spent on Jesus in this moment 
would have been what you it would have been what you would use for a common peasant or a typical criminal who, who was just crucified. It, it would be what you would use for a king. And so Joseph and Nicodemus, uh, they, they give Jesus a burial fit for a king. And they do it according to Jewish customs. It's before the Sabbath begins. It's the day of preparation. So Jesus is, is crucified midday on Friday. It seems they handle these details Friday evening. That's important because on the Sabbath, coming Saturday, no Jew would want to be caught working or doing something as unclean as preparing a body to be buried. So they do all these things in a way that fits their culture, it fits the expectation of the day, but most significantly, it honors the body of Jesus. Now imagine for a second that Joseph Hatton had done this. This is, again, kind of a forgettable moment in the Gospels. It's, it's probably not a story that you've spent a lot of time looking at in detail before, but imagine that Joseph never did this. Imagine what happened to the two other criminals that were crucified that day on Golgotha. Imagine what happened to their bodies. We, we quite frankly have no idea. The Romans didn't guarantee a proper burial for those whom they executed. And so the body of Jesus, who knows what might have happened? Certainly, he wouldn't have been buried in any sense of honor. It would probably been more likely that he would have been, his body at least, would have been in some way disgracefully forgotten. And so what Joseph does here is honorable because he gives the body of Jesus the respect and the appreciation it deserves as the body of the Son of God, as the body of this king for whom they had been waiting. It also, in a unique way, establish, helps establish the fact that Jesus did actually die. Have you thought about that? And there were people in Jesus' own day, you learned about this from the other uh, pieces of writing in the New Testament, there were people in Jesus' own day who said, you know, because you guys know where this is going, right? Sunday morning, they're going to go to this tomb and it's going to be empty. And there are people in Jesus' own day who said, that guy was never dead. He was just, he was just asleep, or he just, he just fainted from all of the, the uh, you know, pain and agony of the cross. And you know, he was just laid aside for a time. But this helps establish, no, he was dead. He was completely dead. Joseph anoints and wraps his body like he would any other corpse. And that's important for understanding the significance of the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. The other thing that happens here is Joseph sets the stage for the resurrection. So look at verses 55 and 56 here. We learn that Joseph's not the only one involved in the scene. It says, The women who had come with him from Galilee followed, and they saw the tomb and how his body was laid. And then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. And on the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. So these, these women, Luke doesn't name them. Uh, we learned from some of the other gospel writers that we've got Mary Magdalene here. Uh, we've got Mary, the mother of James. We've got a, a woman named Salome and some other ladies. Uh, some of these same women are going to come back to this tomb on Sunday morning. So it's important that they follow Joseph to know where the body of Jesus lay. Because something pretty important is going to happen on Sunday morning when they return with these spices to further anoint that corpse. So we all know it's not going to be there. They're going to be in for quite a surprise. So all of what Joseph does here, it sets the stage for that <coughs> moment. It helps prepare us for the resurrection. It helps ensure that Jesus 
was buried in proper honor. And it also gives us a little bit of a balance to the scene overall. As we think about the end of Jesus' life here, and we think about all that we've seen as a church, and we've been walking through Luke 23, we've seen people reject Jesus, we've seen people turn away from Jesus, we've seen Jesus callously handed over to the Romans for crucifixion. And yet, Joseph and the faithful women in this scene, they help provide us some balance. Because they remind us that not all of Israel rejected Jesus. Some, in fact, were mourning his death. And not all of the leadership conspired against him. Some, like Joseph and Nicodemus, they actually opposed the plot uh, that the other leaders set forth. And not all of Jesus' followers abandoned him. We see in the crucifixion scene, all of those followers, like Peter and others, kind of slinking away in the shadows. Not everyone abandoned him. Some remained faithful. And so what I see here, when I look at uh, Joseph of Arimathea, these faithful women that followed him to the tomb, and we think about it here on Reformation Sunday, it's just this reminder that God himself always preserves a faithful remnant in each and every generation. These people, in their own way and in their day, declared, here we stand. We are going to stand with our crucified king. And though it may look like he has been defeated, though it may look like things have gone wrong, we are going to stand with him, even on a hard and dark day. And it actually reminds me a lot of the Reformation, when you think about these things. Because when you get to the, the time period prior to the Reformation, the 14th, 15th, 16th century, that general era, the medieval church has lost some of this innocent faithfulness that we see here among Joseph and these women. Political ambitions had led to corruption among the leaders. Unbiblical practice had caused confusion in the pews. And it, it was really just a messy situation theologically. I mean, you, you had the, the Catholic Church teaching that people could purchase their pardons, that they could make themselves right with God and make others right with God by the money they gave into the church. Now, not everyone was teaching that. Many people opposed that. But on the whole, you had this divided church. You had, you had controversies all over. You had this, this entanglement of theological and political controversies all kind of wrapped up together. And yet in the midst of it all, just like back in Luke 23, God preserved a faithful remnant. God preserved his people through the faithfulness of some particular individuals. And one individual we want to highlight this morning is the German monk turned university professor, Martin Luther. And so rather than tell you guys about him, uh, we brought along a video that I think maybe, maybe we'll communicate to the kids a little bit more. Uh, but it, it has, uh, it's, a, it's a good kind of faithful representation of the story of Luther. So I think there's much we can all learn from it. So we're going to go ahead and watch this and let this video introduce us to Martin Luther. This is the story of Martin Luther. He got up to some pretty adventurous things. He was kidnapped by knights on horseback, lived in disguise in a castle, and helped some nuns escape from a convent by hiding them in barrels. But as a young man, he was troubled by a deep sense that he wasn't right with God. 
Once, in a thunderstorm, a lightning bolt nearly struck him, and he thought he was going to die. And he cried out for help to one of the saints, saying rashly, Save me, and I'll become a monk. He survived. And so, true to his word, he gave up his studies as a lawyer and became a monk. His friends and family said he was wasting his talent. In a monastery, he started reading the Bible. He discovered that it was God's mercy and love that was all that was needed to be right with God. And for the first time in his life, he found a deep peace with God. Luther was invited to be a lecturer at the University of Wittenberg. He taught through books of the Bible, and his lectures were popular. Even ordinary people from the town came along. In those days, the Catholic Church was telling Christians that their good behavior could earn them heaven. But Luther knew from the Bible that no amount of good works could earn you forgiveness. Not even the Pope was able to give forgiveness from God. Only God could do that. Luther saw that the church had left behind what the Bible taught and was even making things up for its own gain. He decided he must teach against these false ideas. He made his complaints public by nailing them to the place in town where people published important documents the door of the castle church. He explained that it wasn't possible to buy God's forgiveness or to live a life that was good enough to deserve to know God. His writings showed that God wants to forgive the wrong we've done and that this is only possible because Jesus, the Son of God, came to pay the punishment that our wrong deserved. Jesus did this as he died in our place. Luther's ideas quickly spread throughout Europe thanks to a recent invention, the printing press. The Pope wrote a document saying that Luther had to take it all back, and if he didn't, he'd be treated as a heretic. Luther refused and publicly burned a copy of the Pope's letter. Luther's ideas shook things up religiously, politically, and culturally. He was soon summoned to stand before the emperor an answer for his supposed crimes of explaining what the Bible said. The emperor declared Luther an outlaw, banning his literature. And that's when he was rescued and went to live in disguise in a castle. Dressing in knight's clothing, he changed his name to Sir George and grew his hair and a beard and spent his time translating the New Testament. Again, it was published widely, meaning ordinary people could read the Bible for the first time. Luther then secretly returned to Wittenberg. He continued to write books and translate the Bible. He also got married and had a family. Europe was buzzing with Luther's message about the Bible. Today, 500 years on, the truths of the Bible that Luther knew continue to impact millions of people. People who've come to know God personally, knowing the peace and forgiveness Jesus offers us. The forgiveness that Luther found is still available today. We can all be in a right relationship with God because of one man, the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, so if you remember most of the details of that video, you would be well ahead of most Christians today uh, in terms of your knowledge of church history. 
But we, we just want to kind of introduce those ideas today and hopefully in a way that the, the kids would uh, relate to. And I would invite you, especially if you're a parent and you got kids with you today, in the uh, kids bulletin there are some questions that you can use to kind of go back over that video later today and talk a little bit about that. Uh, you might also bring up some of the things we're going to talk about here in the last few minutes because I want us to ask, what can we learn from Martin Luther? Okay, so we, we happen to have this guy at home, and so I brought him along with us. And we're going to spend our last few minutes thinking through, what can we learn from the example of <laughs> saints like Martin Luther, and even saints like Joseph of Arimathea, and, and Mary, and Salome, these faithful women at the tomb. What can we learn from the example of saints from the past? So just three quick thoughts to wrap us up. The first is, we have to be willing to stand for truth. Every disciple finds themselves in a particular cultural and historic moment. Now, we don't get to choose our historical moment. We don't get to choose the challenges we're going to face. We don't get to choose the, the drift of the culture around us. But we can decide how we're going to respond to it. We can decide how what we're going to stand for in this day. And ultimately, we want to be like David. We want others to be able to say of us, he or she served the purposes of God in their generation. We want to be like Joseph, who looked around at most of the followers of Jesus, most of the other disciples who were kind of slinking back into the shadows in that day. We want to be like Joseph, and willing to step out and say, I'm going to do what's right. I'm going to do what's honorable. I'm going to do what's necessary, even if it puts me out on a limb by myself. And we want to be like Luther. In a day when, when he was putting his own life at risk, he was putting the lives of his family members at risk, there were, there were a lot of political issues kind of surrounding the whole thing as he began to preach a message that was decidedly different and kind of the official method, message of the church in his, in his city and town around him. We want to be like Luther, willing to stand for truth and say, this is what God has said in his word even when others are distorting. So we have to be willing to stand for truth in our day. I think a, a second thought is we have to make faithfulness our first priority. So the Reformation, it, it did not get everything right. And, and there are many things, if you go back and read the writings of Martin Luther, uh, you're going to come across things that, that we wouldn't necessarily agree with today as a church. Uh, you're going to come across some things that, quite frankly, we would denounce altogether. Uh, and, and so we're not saying that that this guy, Luther, or Calvin, or Zwingli, or any of these guys from the Reformation got everything right. No more than we would say that Joseph of Arimathea would have gotten everything right if we were able to interview him and hear from him all the thoughts he had about Jesus. What we're ultimately saying about these people is they were faithful to God. They weren't without flaws, but they were faithful. And they prior prioritized obedience over fitting in and protecting themselves. And as such, they supply us with a, what the scriptures call a great cloud of witnesses to spur us on. Do you remember that from uh, Hebrews chapter 12? It comes right after that famous chapter in Hebrews 11 that we call the Hall of Faith, uh, where the author of the Hebrews letter is talking all about all these faithful people who have demonstrated faith in their day in different ways at different times. And then he says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us run with endurance the race before us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, mindful of these who have done the same. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus and let us run our race. So 
So I think anytime we look back, we're also challenged to look forward and encouraged to run the race with faithfulness that we find ourselves in. And then lastly, whenever I think about church history, whenever I think about things like Joseph of Arimathea and, and these little somewhat forgotten details in the uh, stories of Scripture, it always reminds me that God is faithful to finish what he started with his church. And you think about what Jesus said to his disciples uh, back in Matthew 16 when he said to Peter, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He has continued to do that through each and every generation. And whether it's the first century disciples or uh, the medieval church or the Protestant Reformation or the Puritans a generation later or the early evangelicals of the 18th century or the Baptists and Pentecostals and Methodists and everybody else in the 20th and 21st century, what we see when we look back on the history of the church is God himself has been faithful to his people to keep that promise. He continues to build his church despite all that happens in the world around us. So as we dedicate our children today, what we're ultimately doing is we're trusting in Jesus to continue that work. We're trusting that just as he built his church in that day, just as he's building his church in this day, someday he'll build the church even for these little ones that we prayed for this morning. And so we pray that we will be faithful as a church in our day, even as we seek to stand for truth in our culture. And we pray that we'll join this long line of saints who've joined with Joseph of Arimathea, joined with Martin Luther, and countless others to say, here we stand, so help us God. But we're going to close up our time today by taking communion. And it's a, it's a good way to end our service. We do this every week here at Midlands, but it's a good way to end our service today because it reminds us that ultimately when we look back on the history of the church, the foundation of it all is the, is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so communion brings us back to that moment, back to that moment of sacrifice when Jesus laid his life down for us that we might have life through him. And so uh, the way we do communion here is we have the, the bread and juice at tables in the back, and in a moment I'll pray and then We'll start a song, and we'd like to invite you, if you're, if you're among us today and you're a follower of Christ, you're welcome at the communion table. We'd like to invite you to partake in that. Uh, if you're with us this morning and you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian, then we'd actually ask you not to participate in this. Uh, not because we want to leave you out, not because we want uh, you to feel in any way uh, separated from us uh, on a, like a social level, but we want you to recognize uh, what, what we hold dear is this, this commitment to the faith, once for all delivered to the saints. The, the same faith that Joseph of Arimathea held to, the same faith that Martin Luther held on to, we hold on to today. And communion is a special time for us as a family, as a family of faith, to celebrate the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. So uh, in a moment, we'll, we'll sing, and you're welcome to make your way back there. Uh, we, we just do communion on our own, so you can, you can take the bread and dip it in the juice and Take it uh, when you're ready, and we'll do that during this next song. But let me go ahead and pray for us, and then we'll, we'll be done. <coughs> God, thank you for men and women in the past who remind us of your faithfulness to your people. We pray as families, as a church family, and as individuals before you, God, that we would be faithful in our own day, whatever challenges that we might face. 
pray especially for kids that were dedicated this morning for each and every one of those children. We pray, God, that you would call them to yourself. You would grant them faith. They would come to hope in the same gospel that your church has held to for thousands of years. We pray that we as a church family would be faithful to disciple them, to teach them truth, and to stand for truth, even in our own day, whatever it may cost us. We thank you that we can celebrate communion. We thank you for the promise it holds to us and the proof it is to us that you are committed to building your church. Build us even now as we remember your sacrifice together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.